0: Picking up our series this evening through the book of Revelation, we're going to come back as we continue to examine the the wrath of God as it's revealed here in this book. The good news, as I've said a few times along the way, is that the church will not be part of this wrath. We believe that the New Testament indicates that the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation period of seven years. So when we come to the wrath that we're examining in these judgments We, if it comes in the near future, will not be here. Um, God's wrath is coming, but he will take his church from the earth before that. Assuming you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as we've celebrated together this evening, this wrath will not be upon us because God's wrath has already been poured out on his Son in our behalf. The, the judgments of Revelation are, are for those who refuse to accept that Jesus is their willing substitute, and, and they are steadfast in their rebellion against God. God does not pour his wrath out on those who have already had a substitute for that wrath, bear it on their behalf. One thing to remember as we look at these judgments is that even in the extended process of wrath that we see in the seven-year tribulation, there's still acts of grace and mercy on display from God, as described in many places throughout the book. God is more than able to to wipe rebellious humanity from the the face of the earth in a single swipe if he would choose, but instead he does a a proacted demonstration of wrath so that there's still time to repent. And there will be many that, that do that. That's elements of grace and mercy even in the midst of wrath. We haven't seen a lot of that yet to this point, but let's not lose track of the fact that God is working that in the midst of things. Working our way through the judgments, we've made it through the, the sixth trumpet. Uh, I'm sure you remember that that's the name given to the second set of seven judgments that make up the book of Revelation. There's there's three series of seven judgments each. You have the seal judgments and then the, the seventh seal, what we Found is that it actually zooms in deeper, and it, the seventh seal contains seven additional judgments. That's the seven trumpets. Well, we've seen six of those trumpets, and we're getting close to the the third series that you, you probably know is called the Bowl judgments. Uh, I trust you also remember that the judgments that we've seen so far, going through the the first six seals, and now the fir- and then the seventh seal that became the the trumpets, the first six trumpets. Getting that far, we've seen uh, incredible devastation. These judgments have already taken it to the point where roughly half the, the population that entered the tribulation period that was on the earth have died as a result of the judgments. Uh, we don't have a lot of time markers, but we're somewhere in the last half of the, the tribulation period, drawing towards the end, probably six years in thereabouts, would be, uh, I would say, reasonable estimate. We don't know how much time is, is left, but it seems as if the, the judgments are intensifying, so we would assume they're coming faster and faster, that you don't just take the, the number of judgments and divide them evenly over the seven years. It seems like it's snowballing and we're getting more intense as we get closer to the end. When we got to chapter 10 a few weeks ago, we, we hit a pause in the sequence of, of time frame going through tribulation as far as the direct action of the judgments go. Uh, with the seal judgments, after the sixth seal, if you remember there, we had hit a pause at a period of time. We were right at the midpoint of tribulation then, and and we stepped out of the flow of events and kind of got some background information. We we called an interlude, an interlude in John's vision as his vision shifted to a couple of scenes that were outside the flow of time, but provided additional information to help understand the the continuing judgments better. In, in that particular case, after the sixth seal, John was shown an answer to a question that was asked if the the sixth judgment fell upon mankind the question was who could stand the great day of wrath that was about to come the last three and a half years of the first three and a half were this bad who would survive the second half of the tribulation that was about to be able to to start and, and John was given an answer there there was uh, some that would stand. They would, they would stand in the sense of being able to stand before God in righteousness because they would come out of the tribulation as martyrs. There would some that would stand in their duty. We had 144,000 witnesses that would take the, the gospel of Jesus Christ even during that period of time and, and be protected from the divine judgments. Now, before the seventh trumpet sounds, John, again, is shown a couple of scenes that, that step outside the flow of the judgments to, to give background information of what is coming when the seventh trumpet sounds. We're, we're now, that's what we saw the last time a couple weeks ago, this interlude, these scenes that gave some background. Uh, as we had Angel was given a little book with some revelation, we had two witnesses that, that were introduced to us. And now we're, we're ready for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And as we'll see in just a moment, that trumpet will sound. We'll hear the seventh trumpet, but we still have to wait to see what falls as a result of this trumpet sounding. As I've told you before, we'll zoom in again, and when we'll see the seventh trumpet actually turns into another set of judgments, the bowl judgments. Yet, that will not happen in the text we're looking at tonight. Instead, once again, we'll step back from the immediate judgments and we'll observe, now in this case tonight, the, the cosmic conflict that is waged throughout human history that, that leads really to the sounding of this trumpet. Let's just begin this evening. I, I, it will make more sense as we go. Let's begin by, by listening to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. The blowing of the seventh trumpet is found in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And if you'd look there, we'll read the, the last few verses of the chapter this evening. John writes, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks. We give you thanks, O God, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstone. The seventh angel sounded. That, that's the seventh of the seven angels who were given trumpets to sound as the, the seven judgments were were in that series of trumpet judgments. We've been waiting for this angel to blow his trumpet and and ever since the end of chapter nine, when we had the sixth trumpet, and out of the sixth trumpet a judgment had come, so so we're all queued up, and and we have increased expectation because verse fourteen, right before this, that we looked at a few weeks ago, says the second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. We we knew from earlier on that the the last three woes were the last three trumpets of the Seventh Judgment. So, so we're queued up waiting for this. Apparently our weight is minor, though, compared to the heavenly weight, as we're given insight in these verses. As soon as the trumpet sounds, John hears loud voices in heaven giving a, a great cry of victory. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. You you get the picture in your mind of uh, of, a person crying out in the the courtroom announcing a great event. Or at least, hopefully you can get that. It's almost impossible to read these words without hearing the great refrain from Handel's Messiah. That's probably what goes through your mind first. Um, I'm sure that's... It, it, that's one case here. Yet I, well, I'm trying to say, this is one case though where I'm sure great works of art, even as great as Handel's Messiahs, it falls far short of what we should envision. That's one of the dangers of art. Art is great. It helps us envision in our mind that which um, is given written word, but it also can kind of trap our minds. And and as great as Handel's Messiah, that's far short of the. What's going on here where all the voices of the angels who inhabit it, heaven that have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this final trumpet to sound are expressing their joy and praise over the coming of what they've been waiting for. They, they've been anticipating for most of human history this event. They've waited for centuries for this moment, millennia even if as we think about human history. And at last, here it is. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We know this cries from angels. It's not from saints because they refer to our Lord and his Christ. Saints would talk about our Christ. And when they're referring to their Savior, angels, however, serve the Father. And they've been waiting for this moment. Ever since... The world went into rebellion. They've been waiting for God to bring the world back into obedience, back into conformity, back into His sovereign rule. So it's clearly once more His kingdom. The world, the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Of course, when they say this great event has come, it's still anticipatory. There's still the final judgment yet to fall, but the waiting is over. What they've been waiting for all these millennia to occur is here. There's nothing left except for things that are now underway. The trumpet has sounded. The end is so certain at this point that, that they can speak of it in a past tense manner. As soon as the angels. Shout their victory. The 24 elders, those we met back in chapter 5, that are closest around the throne, they join in. They, they add their voices. We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. At last, God's power is on display. So his world is under his, his sovereign control with fullness once again. The rebel The rebels have been put down. They too speak as if the end has already arrived in a past tense, even though the final trumpet has just sounded. God's great power with the sounding of this trumpet is unleashed. His reign is unstoppable. The elders go on here in verse 18 and and summarize the final events that that precede the millennium, the the thousand-year reign that that Christ will establish following the, the tribulation when it will be his kingdom here on earth. They, they summarize that the nations continually rage against God, and that caused God's wrath, wrath to come. God's wrath puts down their raging. That, that leads then to the judging of the dead. Now, the details of all these things are unpacked in the coming chapters, but here's the quick summary. And, and we see that the judgment of the saints and the judgment of believers, as when packer are actually separate events, but, but they're just saying with this end, all these things happen. These judgments will occur. The judgments are compressed if the elders simply note that everyone is going to be judged. And resolving from the judgment, those who are Christ, the the prophets and the saints, and those who fear his name, they're rewarded. Those who are the wicked, they are destroyed. It it will not matter whether these are great men or or small men from the world's perspective perspective even the smaller the great they're all judged equally and they're all dealt with properly that's what they're praising because the rebels have been dealt with the seventh trumpet is blown where we're poised now to see the final judgments of god its wrath fall and, and, and finish this work once again though just as the tribulation timeline is starting to move forward we had it on pause and now it moved forward just a click we suddenly encounter another pause as the events once more are paused and we're taken outside the flow of time and, and we're given a, a greater backstory against which we're to understand these final judgments. Now in this case, it will actually be several backstories. As John's vision uh, it will run from chapter 12 all the way through 15 with backstories that, that help us understand this final wrath that is being poured out. Now, I promise we're not looking all these chapters tonight. 12, 13, 14, 15, we'd be here a while yet. We're, we're not going to do that. My, my goal is to spend the rest of our time just looking at chapter 12, where we find a synopsis of, of what I'm calling the War of the Dragon. The War of the Dragon. E- essentially, this chapter and the next chapters, they're, they're more interludes. But but they they lack the familiar code words that we had in the earlier interludes. Those interludes were always introduced with "I saw." John saw something. We that was the code word that said his vision um, location was shifting. He he's his perspective is being adjusted and. And that's how the earlier interludes were introduced. Well, these chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15, they, they feel more like small stories that are interjected that, that help us understand the larger story. These are little novelettes that were given. And they help us understand the, the various perspectives of how we got to this place in human history, how humanity rebelled to such an extent that God is now bringing this crushing blow to bring the kingdom of the world back into place as the kingdom of God. As we look at the War of the Dragon tonight, we'll break it down into three sections. They, that follows the natural structure of the chapter, three different sections. In, in the first six verses, what we find in the War of the Dragon is a synopsis, a quick summary of Satan's ongoing war, his ongoing war. Let's read these verses, 12, 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne, and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. These verses are the first time that, that we hit this word sign in the book. A great sign, it starts out. That that word indicates that what is to follow, the descriptions of things that we're about to read, these involve symbolism. A sign is a, a symbol. The, the thing being described is real, but the description is using symbology rather than, than literal descriptions because there's... There we're lacking words to perfectly describe it, so we use a sign instead. Much like this evening, the, the bread was a sign. It symbolized the body of Christ. The, the cup was a, a sign. It symbolized the blood of Christ. Well, we're given signs, signs that, that stand for something else, something that's very real. In, in this case, there there's three individuals in this passage, and, and two of the individuals are introduced in the form of signs. The first is the woman. And for the sake of time tonight, looking at the clock, I'm not going to trace all the suggestions that have been made by scholars of what the sign represents. Instead, I'm just going to tell you there's a lot of convincing reasons to understand that the sign represents Israel as a nation. Uh, the second individual that's depicted by a sign is the dragon. And we haven't got there yet, but verse 9 clearly shows us that the dragon is Satan. It's God's archenemy. And then the third individual in the verses we read is a male child. And according to verse 5, this is Christ. So we have the nation of Israel, we have Satan, and we have Christ. Those are the three individuals, if you will, in this section. What we have here in these six verses is a very quick sketch of this ongoing war between Satan and Israel. Of course, this war is just one particularly intense set of skirmishes in, in the cosmic war between Satan and God. Satan is at ultimately at war with God, but one of the most intense skirmishes in that war is his war against Israel. From from the birth of the nation onwards, Satan has been trying to destroy Israel because God chose to develop his plan of redemption through that nation. Verses 1 and 2 reflect on the fact that Satan the dragon tried to destroy the nation before Christ was born. They they wanted to prevent his his rival from ever coming. We're to recognize that from the moment that God made his covenant with Abraham, Satan has been trying to disrupt things. And and we're to understand that as we read the whole Old Testament. As we read the Old Testament, we are to read it with understanding that ultimately what's going on is Satan is trying to disrupt God's plan to bring forth his Messiah through the nation. We can think of things like from Sarah ending up in the harems of other men, to Abraham's descendants being oppressed as slaves in in Egypt, to generations being enticed by idolatry from the people around them, to Haman trying to to wipe out every living Jew from the face of the earth. All these different things that that pop out of the Old Testament, those are all examples we're being told here of Satan moving in a way where he seeks to destroy the nation so that the child will never be born. These are all like the labor pains that the nation had to go through because Satan was attempting to prevent Jesus' birth. The dragon's goal, Satan's goal, was to, to block God's plan by destroying the nation before Jesus ever was born. Why the hostility, though? Where, where did it begin? Why is Satan trying to do this? Well, verse 3 jumps further back in time. If, we're, if we start with Abraham and the beginning of the nation in, for verses 1-2, verse 3 jumps further back to the beginning of the cosmic war. There, there, there was a point in time when Satan rebelled against God. And apparently at that time, he, he led a third of the created angels to, to follow him in his rebellion. And, and the, the lot of them, Satan and, and those who followed him, they were all cast to the earth. They, they became d- the demons that we're familiar with. And when it became apparent that Jesus was going to be born, Satan threw everything he had in, in a f- failed attempt to destroy Jesus at his birth. We know how Herod tried to kill every baby and, and Jesus had to flee quickly to, to Egypt. And, and we can see from this Satan's struggle is really not with Israel directly. His struggle is primarily with Jesus. His actions against Israel are secondary. They're, they're only there because that's a means that he could prevent or destroy Jesus. Jesus's earthly ministry is very quickly summarized there in verse five, in that he was born and then he ascended to heaven once more before the, the dragon could destroy him. We kind of jump over all of his earthly ministry and in the cross, just from his birth to to his ascension. It, it jumps over the crosswork, but the purpose of the sketch is not to focus on redemption; is to to find what's what's behind what's happening right now in the tribulation in this. And how does that fit into this ongoing war with Satan? Verse 6 then jumps further to the last part of the tribulation, the, the second half of the seven years, the the final 1,260 days. It, it jumps to that. And since Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand at this time in heaven, the the woman, Israel, is the only one left for the dragon to attack. Jesus has been whisked away, out of out of out of reach that the fact that we realize that the church is also removed at this point in history makes it even more the case that Israel is the only one Satan can attack, especially since as we come to the tribulation period, Israel is now back in the center of god 's plan as God completes all the remaining promises he made. To the nation. So Satan vents his anger, his wrath against Israel as the only one remaining representing God's kingdom. So, having seen this very quick summary, this very quick sketch of Satan's ongoing war, let's move to the next section Satan's heavenly battle. Verses 7 through 12, his heavenly battle. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced, when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. These verses here suddenly zoom in to, to heaven, where the, we can see what's going on in heaven after we've had this quick sketch. And, and they describe a, a key event that happens at the very midpoint of the tribulation an event that has great influence on the war between Satan and Israel, but an event that takes place, as I said, in heaven. It focuses, though, why is Satan so much venting his wrath on Israel at this point in time? Well, from what we see in the, the first couple of chapters of Job, as well as Zechariah uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it's clear that Satan currently, right now, today, enjoys access to heaven. He, he comes and goes, and, and he makes accusations against the people of God. That's one of the things that he's doing right now. Verse 10 even references the, this current function that Satan has. He he's, goes before God and accuses God's people, the saints. For some reason, though, at the middle of the tribulation, Satan and his minions, his demons, they, they launch an all-out war against God in heaven. At least it seems as if it's against God, because Michael and the other angels battle against him. Michael and the other angels in in heaven, they they prevail. And and the result is that Satan is permanently expelled from heaven. Whereas today he can come and go and and present his accusations, now he's expelled at the midpoint of tribulation. Access that he's enjoyed to this point, that he uses, is stripped from him and the earth becomes his only abode. Again, what we just read, we hear a loud voice in heaven. This time the voice, again the voice of heavenly angels, interprets this event as indicating that the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So we see how things are these things are the culminating events that bring about the kingdom of God, the, the millennial kingdom into existence. This is part and parcel of that process. Satan's cast from heaven at the midpoint of tribulation. The, the last trumpet is is then blown as we get a little bit later in time to those final judgments. And all these bring the seven years to an end. And these events combine to make the announcements of chapter 11 and chapter 12 a reality. A, a reality so certain that that the angels are treating it as already occurred. What I want to do is notice two things that are mentioned in passing in in the scene that we have here in heaven. First, in in verse 11, we have a a tangential statement about how believers have overcome. The event that is uh, observed in this section is that saints' ability to accuse the saints is brought to an end because he's expelled from heaven. But in passing, John notes that Satan has been the one accusing those who overcome. Those who overcome. We know from the early chapters that overcomers are believers. They are those who hold their faith in Christ as they face all the challenges that that come in life. Note how we're reminded, though, that they overcame not through their own efforts. They overcame Satan because... Of the blood of the Lamb. Their victory is Christ's victory. It's wonderful that we come to this as we've partaken of the Lord's table tonight. It's His blood, it's His cross work, that which we celebrated this evening that enables the overcoming of every believer. Yet the overcoming is not a passive activity, there's a second part. And because of the word of their testimony, so they overcome because of the blood of Christ, combined with the word of their testimony. Even in the face of death, if necessary, these believers overcome by trusting in Christ's finished work, by not deviating from their faith, by holding on that his work is sufficient. They do not sway in their faith. They, they do not try to add their efforts to his work. They, they just continue proclaiming Christ, giving his testimony. That is an overcomer. We need to remember this basic principle. We are called to be overcomers. The, the message is, as I said, to the churches back in chapters 2 and chapter 3, those were calls to the churches before the rapture ever occurred to overcome. Paul calls for us to participate in our salvation by, by working it out uh, in, in Philippians chapter 2. And yet the, the way we work it out, we're shown here by holding steadily to the blood of the Lamb. We don't work it out by adding anything to it. We work out by holding on to faith in Christ. We overcome when we trust, no matter how bad things are, that Christ has won. We follow him in faithful obedience, trusting Christ in all aspects of our life. That is our testimony. The means of overcoming is Christ's blood combined with our testimony that regardless of how dire our circumstances may seem, Christ has the victory. So I want us to note that here in passing. And then the second thing to note is that verse 12 makes it clear that Satan's expulsion from heaven is a good thing in heaven. Those dwelling on the in heaven, they're called to rejoice. It's, it's a good thing from heaven's perspective. Yet at the same in at the same time, in a sense, heaven notes or the angels note, it's bad news for the world because Satan's full hatred of God is going to be exercised against God's creation. The dragon has nowhere else to vent his hatred. Furthermore, the dragon knows he has only a very short time remaining to vent his wrath. His end is coming. His time is short. So he does everything he can. He makes a final all-out attempt to destroy as many image bearers as possible in the time that's left. His goal is to leave as much damage and misery in his wake as possible. It will be a very bad time upon the earth. Verses 7 through 12 show this heavenly battle that Satan is engaged in. And then the final verses of the chapter record the, Satan's final throes, his final throes. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured out water, or poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth, so that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who, kept the, who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan only has a short time to vent his anger, so he turns his attention, first of all, to destroying the woman Israel. He, he's no longer trying to prevent the, the birth of the child, he's just trying to take as many of God's chosen people down as he can. He hates God, so he hates those who represent God the most. But God allows the nation to flee to a wilderness refuge of some kind for the last two and a half years of the tribulation. That's the time, times, and half a time. Another way of referring to that final two and a half years. And, and as they go to this refuge, they're, they're taken somehow beyond the dragon's reach. The, the image of the two wings of the eagle in verse 14, that, that pictures the, the speed and the strength which the nation is given to escape. Satan clearly tries to destroy them as they escape. The, the serpent, he pours water out like a river from his mouth after the woman. And that, that river, scholars debate, it could represent an army that Satan uses as he works through the, the, the nations on earth uh, to pursue the fleeing people. Or it could be a literal flood they send into wilderness valleys through which the people flee. There's no way that we can know for sure what Satan uses, but he's attempting to destroy Israel as they flee. But apparently God miraculously protects the people. He he causes the earth much as God caused the earth in Numbers chapter 26 when the sons of Korah rebelled to to simply open up. And, And the earth physically opens up and it swallows whatever it is the dragon sends in pursuit of Israel, whether it's an army or a flood. Either way, it's simply swallowed by the earth. Then, since Israel, or at least uh, the, the remnant of Israel, is beyond the reach of the dragon's anger for the last half of the tribulation, John sees in verse 17 that Satan turns his attention to the rest of her children. There is a lot of scholarly debate around who are the rest of her children. But, but we know a couple things that, that help us narrow down the choices. One, we we know that these are believers in Jesus Christ because these are people who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're just told that's the the recipe of an overcomer, Uh, those who who are part of that. So we know they're believers. We also know from from chapter 7 that there will be a vast multitude of martyrs coming out of the final half of the tribulation. Including most likely the 144,000 Jews who were spe- specifically appointed by God to serve as gospel witnesses. We know that these martyrs come out, and, and when we put these. Together, I think we can conclude that the rest of her children are either the 144 Jews who, who continue their worldwide witness rather than joining the nation in the, the refuge of protection in the wilderness. They, they persevere and continue to go out throughout the world proclaiming Jesus Christ. It's either them or the countless Gentiles who come to faith through the witness of the Jewish nation who has at long last... Turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, between those options, I would probably lean towards it being a reference to Gentile believers who, who Satan will persecute relentlessly, killing in massive numbers, producing those, those martyrs that we saw in chapter 7. But, but I'll let you decide for yourself um, who you want them to represent. We, it's not one of those things that we can be real dogmatic over, but we know these are believers That Satan vents his anger on because he cannot reach the nation of Israel. We know for sure as well that the dragon, Satan, is well aware that his remaining time is limited. This is his final chance to rage against God. He cannot address God directly. He has no access whatsoever to heaven, So all he can do is try to generate as much turmoil as possible for saints who still remain on the earth. All he can do is rage against image bearers in general, and and believers in particular. So Satan will do this with all of his remaining might, using, as we'll see next week, a little dangler here, using some specific humans as his principal agents. These are Satan's final throes before Christ returns. His final throes. That's what we have in, in verses 13 through 17 in, in this record of the war of the dragon. Tonight, we, we've heard, figuratively of course, we, we've heard through this written record, we've heard the final trumpet sound. And, and yet before the judgments of that trumpet, we were shown this record of the war of the dragon. We have Satan's his, historic battle with God. Uh, John's given this this brief sketch of this ongoing war that that began very early in in creation's history, very, very early, when when Satan led his rebellion in heaven. There was this heavenly battle then that we saw uh, in the midpoint of the tribulation, and and then we see Satan's final throes as he he leads an onslaught against believers that, that remain upon the earth and those who carry gospel witness. As we conclude our survey tonight, what I want to do is think about how does this apply to us? As I said at the outset, we will not face the tribulation. So even if the, the tribulation begins next week, we won't be here. So why do we need to know these details? Why did God reveal this information to John so that he could pass it along to the church, to us? I believe that the overall lesson that, that we should take from this is, is a simple one. It's the simple lesson that no matter what he tries, Satan cannot win. No matter what he tries, even when he gives all of his energy in a final onslaught, he cannot win. So no matter what he tries now, Satan cannot win. Sometimes it's, it's easy to get discouraged it does, at times, seem as if Satan is winning. From, from our perspective, in, in our point in time, the very finite view that we have of things, things happen that appear to give Satan the upper hand. Maybe not in the overall scheme of things, but at least in our daily life, at times, it seems as if Satan has the upper hand. We need to remember that these appearances are irrelevant. Irrelevant. No matter what he tries, Satan cannot win. The secret to overcoming is faith in Jesus Christ because the blood has already been shed. The cross work is complete. Knowing that truth, that Satan cannot win, focusing on that, that should remind us that our concern is not with how Satan will be defeated. Our concern is with remaining a faithful overcomer. Doing what Christ has called us to do within each and any circumstance that that we encounter. We are to remain obedient to Christ because he went to the cross. We can remain obedient to Christ because we know that no matter what Satan tries, he will not win. We simply have to remember that. No matter what he tries, Satan cannot win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this evening. What a joy it is to be able to gather together and celebrate the Lord's table with other overcomers. We thank you that we can overcome because of the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, the victory that he has. Father, we thank you too that there will be the day that Satan will ring out with great joy because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God once more as our Savior will step his foot back on earth and set up a kingdom, a righteous kingdom, a perfect kingdom, with him as the king. Father, we know that until that time, no matter how much the dragon rages, he will never have victory. His defeat is already assured. It's already been written down. We have been able to read it tonight because you, Father, revealed it, and you will accomplish it. So may we be men and women who focus on being faithful overcomers, knowing that the victory is secure. We pray this in the name of the victor, our Lord and Savior. Amen.